All right. Uh, welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. Um, first of all, thank you all for rating it five stars on uh, iTunes. That's amazing. Keep remember, uh, the, you know, the way that you guys can contribute to the podcast is by continually to rate it and leave comments as you have been doing. And then also sharing the episodes. And then if you want one-on-one coaching, go to thrivewithleo.com. Once again, thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching. Uh, and you get to work with yours truly, Leo Flowers. Uh, but in the meantime, today I'm excited because uh, I feel like this whole week I've been talking to different people about food and uh, food allergies and their diet. And especially people have fallen way off from what their New Year's Eve resolutions were. And, um, but today I have Ricky Lee Hots on here, who is uh, not only a professional ballroom dancer, which uh, I'm excited to hear about, but also a registered dietitian and nutritionist. Welcome, Ricky Lee Hots. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on today, Leo. Yeah, thanks for being a part of this. So first of all, you're in Denver, right? Correct. Um, and so uh, give me a little background on this ballroom dancing, first of all, before we even get into the food stuff. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. Were your, was your mom a ballroom dancer? Who got you into this? So ballroom dancing was kind of an interesting journey for me. Um, I was a gymnast for 11 years until I was 16 years old. And then after that, I quit because of injuries and all that good stuff and was trying to find what to do with my passion and my time and my energy. And I was watching So You Think You Can Dance, watching all those shows on TV. I had some old teammates that would always say to me, oh, you're such a terrible dancer. Um, And so I I was like, you know what? Ballroom Studio opened down the road from my house. Let me try this stuff. I saw it on TV. I thought it looked cool. So I tried it and I fell in love with it. Um, So then from there, I kind of just started taking lessons as a student. And then in college, I kept going further with it. I was on the college ballroom club team. I ran the whole club. We had over 100 members. It was a super fun experience. And then I started getting a little more serious about my dancing after that. So started competing with an instructor and really training hard to eventually hopefully become a professional competitor. And then a few years ago, I had the opportunity to try out with a partner that was here in Denver. Um, And I was living in Tucson, Arizona at the time. And so I tried out with them and we meshed really well together and the rest is history. I picked up my life, my business. I moved up here to be able to compete professionally as a dancer as well as still run my nutrition practice in this city. So now I teach dance um, and I compete professionally all over the country. Wow. Uh, Ricky, we are having some internet problems. So okay. we, we might have you cut out the video just so that uh, it's not okay. taking up too much bandwidth. So if you can switch over to just audio. Um, yes. And uh, all right. How's that? Yeah, uh, fantastic. And then if there, if there, we still have some audio problems then it might be on my end, but, I, but usually that's sometimes that's what happens when we uh, have two videos going at the same time. Okay. Um, well, well, incredible story. The one thing that I love about your story is that, 
you had friends, quote unquote friends, who told you you were a horrible dancer. <laughs> and, and instead of, you know, licking those wounds and accepting that as your fate, you, uh, you, you got inspired and got encouraged. And, and now you've shown them who is the bad <laughs> dancer. Um, Absolutely. But, but also, you know, part of that success was in what you said in terms of you found the right partner, right? Mm-hmm. Like part of it, like you already had a skill foundation, but that, you know, we, we go through life trying to do so many things on our own and, 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 and thinking that, you know, we're, we're an island when uh, really it's like when we find the right person, whether that's professionally or mm-hmm. uh, romantically, that can be the difference in going from, from being good and being great and, and really taking off. Yeah, definitely. The uh, so let's get into your uh, dietitian. Um, uh, you know, being a dietitian and nutritionist, one mm-hmm. of the things I'm fascinated with is um, how it affects our mood. Because a lot of times when people are experiencing uh, anxiety or depression or uh, any type of mood disorder, we just quickly kind of attribute it to that's just how I am or um, you know, uh, the, the meds aren't working, but sometimes it can be food related. Um, does that, do you agree with that or? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of aspects of food that are correlated with mood. Um, there's a lot of research out there and more and more is continually coming out. Um, so that's, that's really a big deal and a big connection, I think, in the mental health as well as the nutrition world right now. Right. Um, I'm sure you've heard the term hangry before. Oh, yeah. I was, I was hangry yesterday. I had, a, I had a long flight and I didn't really get real food in me and uh, I, could, I could feel myself uh, a little edgy. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, on the most basic level of mental health and food and nutrition, that's step one. You know, if you're not fueling your body, you're going to be quick to react and there's going to be a lot of emotional imbalances just because your body doesn't have that blood sugar control and that stability in your hormonal production to be able to say, take the time to actually think and respond to a situation. Um, go ahead. Uh, yes. Yeah, so that, that's kind of part one on that side. I think that's okay. really the first step about food and mental health. And so can we break that part down for a second? Because you, you talked about hormonal responses. Can you, mm-hmm. can you talk to us a little bit more about food and hormones and, and, and how we see that play out, uh, in terms of how we feel and behave? Yeah. So there's a few different Uh, I guess you could say hormone production trains and different things that are produced when we eat, when we digest. Uh, So if you think, for example, of like blood sugar, that's probably the simplest process that we think of. When When we eat something with sugar or carbohydrates in it, our body then, ideally, if it's working right, produces insulin to deal with and take up that sugar and produce it and either store it or help convert it to a source that we can use as energy immediately. Um, So that's one process chain. Then our body, if we don't get that sugar and we don't have that process going on and it's been too long since we've had that 
carbohydrate in our system, our body will go through a process called gluconeogenesis, which is basically where we're taking sugar from our body or we're taking other stored sources of energy and we're breaking them back down into sugar for our body to use for energy sources that need that glucose. So a lot of the time in that end, when we get lower on sugar, our body has to work a little harder to get things done. So that's one kind of train where when we get that drop in blood sugar and our body's trying to kind of reproduce and deal with that, we will kind of have that immediate mood situation where sometimes, you know, the endorphin productions are a little funky and we have just just some different triggers going on there. Um, When it comes to mood in general, there are a lot more connections that are being shown in terms of the gut bacteria in our system and how those correlate with the production of all our different mood balancer hormones, basically. Um, So depending on how balanced our gut is, then we can utilize that to control, okay, if our gut is working the way it needs to, it's going to help produce those different hormones that are going to control mood, anxiety, depression, happiness, things like that. Whereas if our gut is off in general, sometimes no matter how good we're eating, if our gut bacteria is not quite right, those mood, endorphins, et cetera, are not producing the way we need them to. It completely makes sense because when I have a stomach ache, or just uneat, whatever it is, my mood completely changes. Versus if I sprained my ankle or tore my meniscus or, um, you know, pains in different other parts of my body, it doesn't affect the way I think and feel as much as when there is a discomfort or imbalance in my gut. Um, so I, that completely makes sense that if there's an imbalance in the gut, it throws off our mood and, uh, you know, even to the point where it affects our sleep. You mentioned sugar. Well, can, mm-hmm. you know, sugar gets such a bad rap, you know, it's like keep your sugars low, don't eat yeah. sugar. Everybody's on a keto and a paleo. Can you talk to us about what the, what people are thinking about sugar and how they should think about sugar? Like what, What's the what's the healthy balance there in terms of sugar in our diet? Yeah, so this is this is an area that I'm actually quite passionate about um, because in my practice I really promote a lot of balance and moderation. Mm-hmm. This whole concept of all foods can fit into a healthy eating lifestyle, which okay. is very against the concept of sugar is bad, sugar is a killer, sugar is the worst thing out there. And, you know, this is where I kind of, I I do keep up on the research and see kind of, okay, how are these keto diets and paleo diets panning out long-term for people? Mm. What are the actual short-term results versus the long-term results? And those are things I keep an eye on because if they can prove me wrong, I will definitely change my mind uh, with some good research. But basically at this point, from what I've seen is a couple things with sugar. I would say when sugar is processed and done in a refined form, so basically a lot of our sweets and some of our baked goods and our white breads and things like that, those should be taken in in more moderation. 
So why, why that is, is that sugar is going to immediately hit our system. And so we're going to get this blood sugar spike, and then we're going to get a crash, which is when we're producing this kind of bolus load of insulin. And then our body is kind of having to work really hard to balance things out. And when we get that blood sugar crash, then we feel moody and we feel like we're hungry again an hour after we've eaten when we maybe shouldn't otherwise. The other side of it is when you look at maybe some whole grain high fiber carbohydrates or you're looking at fruit or you're looking at starchy vegetables, things like that, there's a fiber component to it. So fiber slows down that digestive process so that instead of necessarily feeling like your blood sugar spikes and crashes in an hour, it's going to delay that. There's also another component to that though, where I always say don't have a carbohydrate by itself. Combine that with a protein or a fat. And when you're doing that, that basically combines the way your body is going to use that energy in the most effective method possible. So basically it's going to take what it needs. It's going to get rid of what it doesn't as long as your portion sizes are good. And then you'll probably be full for at least three to four hours before you start feeling hungry again. Um, when you talk about fiber, can let's, you know, I, I, it's like you, you bring up these words and I'm like, oh yeah, because there's so much talk about sugar. There's so much talk about protein and fat, but there, I feel like there's little talk about fiber I was just, uh, I mean, not to get too personal, but I was just in a bathroom mm-hmm. at this very nice hotel and <laughs> I walk into the, the, the restroom. I sit down to do what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the guy next to me was still in there. You know, like I get in get out because I just had a quinoa bowl, you know, so everything right. was real <laughs> smooth. It was quinoa with some kale and some, uh, some butternut squash. So everything was just bloop. And my boy was still over there and I was like, man, his, his fiber is, is low, you know, or he might be dehydrated. Yep. It could be either one. So can, can you then talk to us about uh, sources of, of fiber and, and can you like what that would look like in breakfast, lunch and dinner? Like what would be a good source of fiber in those three realms? Yeah, absolutely. So fiber comes in a couple different forms. So we also have to think about how we take in fiber because fiber can can have opposite effects depending on the individual and depending on how much we take in. So first of all, there's soluble versus insoluble fiber. So your insoluble fiber, you're going to get a lot from your green leafy vegetables and those fiber sources that basically like the skins of your fruits and vegetables and stuff like that, where your body's really not breaking that down. It's not doing much with it. And what the goal of that is, is to add bulk to your system and to add kind of strength to the movement of your gut. Whereas soluble fiber, that's going to come from like your, like your oats and it's going to come from your nuts and some, of, some, ty- some parts of your seeds and things like that. There's a good mix of soluble and insoluble fiber in that. Um, but what those do is those essentially solidify your stool in a way that it's going to nicely move down your system. Whoa. So Okay. 
Yeah. So basically we're looking at, and it's also going to bind cholesterol is the other nice benefit of that. So that's going to kind of help move some of that bad cholesterol out of your system. Um, so the soluble fiber, we need both for the way our gut functions, but sometimes people will get so much insoluble fiber from their, maybe their outside of the corn or the green leafy things that they'll say, well, it's just coming right out and it will. So if you overeat those, sometimes it'll kind of stay in your gut and you'll have a little more issues with gas and things like that. So the soluble fiber and insoluble fiber combination is kind of the best thing we want. We don't want to overdo one or the other. Um, In terms of sources at breakfast, lunch, dinner, at breakfast, I kind of mentioned oatmeal. Um, Oats are a really great source of soluble fiber that you can throw in at breakfast. Um, Some other options, and it's also a good way to add healthy fat, would be things like chia seeds or flax seeds or things like that that you can either mix into, you could do something like a chia pudding, or you could mix it into an oatmeal type breakfast, or you can even do it as a side with your eggs or something along those lines. So that's kind of a breakfast thing. Um, Can we we put a pin in that for a second? Now with the chia and flax seeds, um, there's talk about like the flax seeds have to be ground and you can't have whole flax seeds or your body doesn't digest it. And then somebody mm-hmm. was telling me that we really can't do anything with chia seeds. Can you talk about those for a second? Like what's the best form? And um... Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of those areas where, again, the research is always kind of changing and growing and right. we're always trying to just stay up to the best thing we know about those. With flax, I do think ground is a little bit easier for our body to use. It's breaking down some of the some of the proteins and some of the components of the flax that's maybe blocking absorption and blocking some of those high fiber fat benefits. So if it is kind of freshly ground and it's, and it's in that powdery form, your gut's probably going to be able to do a little bit more with it. Um, in terms of chia seeds, I actually, I haven't seen much research uh, negating their benefit on my end. But what I've seen is if you do soak the chia seeds, also has kind of a similar um, side response to the flax seeds being ground up, where basically it's creating some of that availability of the nutrients from the chia seeds that maybe potentially aren't there in their solid form if you just take a spoonful of it. Got it. Um, And then if we can go back to like what would fiber look like in lunch and then uh, Mm -hmm. dinner? Yeah. So fiber, a lot of the time, there's a couple of ways, like I said, you can get it. Um, You can get it in your starch sources. So you can get it from eating some fruit at lunch, or you could get it from some whole grain bread. If you're going to have a sandwich or a whole grain wrap, Um, you could also get it from sources like if you're going to have a nice side salad or some vegetables on the side, that's a way you're going to get some of that insoluble fiber um, to just keep your gut nice and strong. So that's a really good way when we're kind of coming to lunch and dinner to get that fiber in there. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes people like, especially if you have medical conditions that affect the gut, fiber can almost have a negative side effect because your body is just 
struggling to process it. So you'll see people with like Crohn's disease, for example, uh, that'll come to me and they're like, I'm, I'm eating this high fiber food and I know that's healthy for me, but it makes me feel so sick. Uh, In those situations that if you have an inflamed gut, a lot of the time high fiber might actually hurt you (laughs) because your gut just can't tolerate it at that time. And that's when I actually say we have to go against the natural healthy concepts. And for our grains, we're going to do a little less whole grain and a little lower fiber grain and just combine it with some nice soft protein sources and things along those lines. Now, when we say soft protein sources, what, what are you referring to? So when, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about, you know, like well-cooked chicken and turkey and things like that, that are, you know, not overcooked, obviously, but making sure that they're, when they are well-cooked, that they're not tough. Gotcha. So, you know, if you're going to have a piece of steak and you cook it well done, Mm-hmm. that's going to be really hard to digest. Whereas, you know, some fish or some lean chicken and things like that is going to be a little bit easier on the gut. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, just briefly, because we did talk about stool. Um, now, what what does a healthy stool look like versus, because sometimes it's clumps, sometimes it's a log, sometimes it's... Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, uh, you know, and I, and I know that when you go to the doctor, they look at those things and they, and they, they're like, oh, you know, it should look like a certain way. Can you, can you briefly tell us what it says about how we should be eating, if that makes sense? Yeah, definitely. So stools are always, it's always funny when people come into my office and we get to that topic because everyone's uncomfortable about talking about poop. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's that book out there that, they have for kids called everybody poops. Uh-huh. And um, you know, that's something I like I like to tell my clients it's important because the way our stools look, the way our stools smell, how often we're going in the bathroom, all those things are telling us a lot about how our gut is working. Okay. So for example, there's the thing called the Bristol stool scale, which is a really great kind of summary about what our stools should look like. And a lot of your gastroenterologists will use that when they're trying to identify, okay, what does the stool look like? Um, And it's basically a scale of one to seven where on one end, you have kind of this, the rabbit pellets, where it's very hard, dry, tiny little, tiny little pieces. And then on the other end is totally water loose stool. Um, So we kind of want to be somewhere in the middle. We want a solidly formed stool that's easy to get out of our gut, basically. So, you know, that that's kind of the realm we're looking at. If you look at that scale, it's probably at a four or five on that scale. It's kind of what you're aiming for. Okay. Um, we also want to, you also think about smell a little bit. So not to get too too vulgar, but if we're if we're looking at the smell side of it, if you've got really gassy, like not like really bad smelling poop, there's Mm -hmm. probably something that's either sitting in your gut too long or fermenting, or maybe you're eating too high fat, you know, things along those lines. Um, so you'll kind of notice if, if you've got that really methane smelling poo, something's probably a little bit 
off in the way your gut bacteria are functioning in your gut and the food you're eating. I'm so glad you, you know, growing up, um, the fan just kicked off for some reason. Um, cut it off. And it wants to stay on. Um, the growing up, it's like having a, a bad when when somebody came out the bathroom and it stunk. Mm-hmm. You just always expected that, like that yeah. was par for the course. Nobody questioned it. You just knew, and you used to talk about it. like you see somebody going to the bathroom, like oh they about to blow it up. But there's a whole time. It was mm-hmm. a sign of, uh, you know, that they weren't, that something was, a, was wrong with their diet. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, when you, you said, uh, you, you know, one of your passions is, uh, is, is talking about sugar. Um, and, and so many people, including myself, you know, I, I played college mm-hmm. football and I weighed mm-hmm. uh, 275 pounds. Um, and, you know, I, I've lost uh, a lot of the weight, but not still got it. I still, you know, like to polish off a pint of ice cream here and there. So I, I myself, you know, yeah. uh, you know, that the, the ice cream is just a thing for me. But what are what are some tools and tactics? Because so many people I mean, we talk about the opioid epidemic and mm-hmm. uh, all the uh, like crack and cocaine. But it but, you know, when we look at the top killers of people with heart disease, cancer. We know that uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, those things feed off of sugar. And and that mm-hmm. is, so a lot of people are dying from something that we can control. Uh, can, can you talk about that? Like what, what, whatever, wherever you want to start, wherever you want to start. Yeah. So for me, and that's, that's definitely that tricky spot because, you know, all that research is coming out there about how sugar is connected with a lot of these potential disease states. And, you know, I do believe there is a component to that and especially, you know, a connection with addictiveness of sugar and obesity. But I also kind of keep partially in the back of my mind that we've also had phases where cholesterol and food caused all those problems. And now that's not necessarily the case. So do I think sugar should be eliminated 100%? I don't think it necessarily has to, but I think the big issue is the amount of sugar that we're consuming. And so really, I moderation and balance is where my first thoughts go. Okay. So for example, I do a lot of work with eating disorder clients right. on both the anorexia, bulimia side, but as well as the binge eating side. And so a lot of the time people, you know, they're trying to restrict their food or they're trying to restrict their carbs. And then they go back in the evening and they binge eat. So, and that you don't necessarily have to have binge eating disorder to binge eat. Um, But a lot of the time, you know, we're trying to be so perfect on how we're eating and then our, our body will crave something. And for example, if we're cutting out carbs and now our body, we're not getting that immediate source of energy that our body needs. And so our body, when it gets to the evening is saying, well, you didn't give me carbs. I need something quick and easy right now. So I'm going to get the simple sugars and that's what I'm going to crave. So that's, go ahead. So, so, you know, really a lot of it is on a simple, simple level that the carb craving is 
is really the result of not consuming enough carbs per se um, mm-hmm. in, in a healthy way. So then your body goes, give me the simple carbs. It's like, you didn't give me sweet potatoes and oatmeal earlier. So give me cookies and ice cream. Exactly. And that's, that's definitely a big portion of it. Uh, so a lot of the time with my clients, my experiences that I've had is when we get balanced meals that have good, healthy carbs consisted throughout, maybe depending on the individual, but on average, you know, we have three meals, two to three snacks a day. Um, and they're getting a balance of their carbs, protein, and fat at each of those. And so by the end of the day, that sugar craving, unless it's emotionally driven, which sometimes, you know, our emotions kind of force us to eat. And that's another discussion, but physically our body won't crave sugar at that point. Um, because, and a lot of my clients have seen that they're like, I'm not craving dessert at night. I feel satisfied. Mm. Sometimes though, if we are people that stay up a little bit later, our body also has trouble distinguishing types of energy when it's giving us signals of what do I need? So if we're tired and we stay up, our body's going to say, okay, well, you're not giving me sleep energy. So give me food instead. So that's the other potential cause of a lot of that late night, you know, sugary or quick carb snacking that goes on. Right. So it's like, give me, give me sleep or give me food kind of thing. You're right. It's like, I I notice Mm -hmm. after I stay up past a certain hour, uh, 10, 11, then Mm -hmm. my body's like, okay, you know what happens, you know? And, uh, and it's, and it's, it's a tipping point where, uh, I can't fight it off. So I have to preemptive strike it by, uh, making sure that, um, I have a full day. I, I realized part of my uh, late night uh, binging comes from not being fully engaged during the day. So it's Absolutely. made me more um, uh, intentional about what I'm doing throughout the day because boredom also, uh, talking about the emotional part of it, mm-hmm. if, if I'm bored yeah. and I don't feel like I've, uh, if I haven't drained myself enough mentally, then mm-hmm. uh, I find myself craving foods, um, but and also mm-hmm. watching binge watching Narcos. You know, it's like if you, <laughs> it's like you move from one binge practice to the next. So you know, to yeah. to, to limit the amount of of TV, there's definitely a correlation with me with um, uh, the amount of TV I watch and how much I eat. If I have a book in my hands and there's no room for for <laughs> snacks, so uh, yeah, definitely. And so that's something I actually also talk a lot about in my practice is once we figure out how to balance our food, that's part one. That's the easy part is having the knowledge about how to balance your food. Once you have that, now it's the emotional behavioral side. So I have the knowledge. Now, why am I not doing it? (laughs) And, And so a lot of that, I, one of the methods I use is talking about mindful eating. So at least one of the meals a day. I like to say if you can incorporate it in all of them, great. But taking that time to actually taste your food and put the fork down in between bites 
and enjoy and pay attention to what you're eating, no distracted eating. And that a lot of the time, then you start to realize, do I even enjoy this food? And if you do, you'll gain the satisfaction from it a lot more quickly. It's not like, oh, wait, I want more of that taste and it's gone already. That, um, you know, the other part that I, I'm sorry, like the air cut, cut, uh, cut back on again. I, I was trying to address the sound. Um, when you talk about, can we go back for a second? When you talk about balanced yep. food, um, uh-huh. I've also realized that part of like a balanced plate or balanced meal is uh, addressing uh, texture and mm-hmm. colors. Yeah, and absolutely. Because I've, I've always wondered, like when I go to a restaurant, I'm like, why when I cook this stuff, uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't satisfy me the way it does at a restaurant. And then I started uh, looking at more about the, uh, uh, the the different textures of food and then the different colors of food and also mm-hmm. the different flavors of food, uh, like, mm-hmm. you know, bitter, sweet, sour, all those different things. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's why uh, bowls have become so popular. Because it allows for people to put up. Can you talk about texture, taste, Mm -hmm. and like how that all lends itself to you feeling satisfied? Yeah, so that, and you know, there are, when it comes to texture and things like that, definitely differences from person to person. Because different people, you know, have their different textural satisfactions. But a lot of it too is the different textures a lot of the time have different components. So, you know, if you have a crunchier thing, it's probably got some fiber in it. Mm. And so that's giving you some of that. Whereas your protein's going to have a texture all to itself. And then there's the mouthfeel of fattier foods and all of those types of things. So that's one aspect is when you're getting a variety of that, you're probably getting a variety of your macronutrients. Mm. Then when you look at color, Color, a lot of the time, is your micronutrients showing through. So that's looking at our vitamins, minerals, uh, different phytonutrients, like the things that we all talk about as antioxidants and um, the things that help us with longevity. So the more color we add, we're also getting a more complete balance of all of those nutrients into our body, which a lot of the time is allowing our, our physical body to feel more satisfied. So, because it's getting more of what it needs. Oh, you know, that makes so much sense. Uh, it, uh, because, uh, you know, I think so many people are like taking all these, um, uh, vitamins, you know, multivitamins mm-hmm. and things like that. And, uh, but a lot of those vitamins don't go well together, right? Some, sometimes right. they fight each other. So taking a multivitamin is not, you know, I mean, if that's your only resort, then by all means, but, um, but there's a reason why certain foods grow during, grow during certain times of the year and others don't because if right. two of these foods together, they just, your body is not going to be happy and your stomach's going to be upset. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk to us maybe about like, a, a, like maybe some food combinations that aren't the best and then food combinations that are the best, uh, if that, if that question makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, that's also, I kind of look at seeing where I'm going to overdo one 
food group or the other basically is one area I kind of look at. And I actually, when you talk about food combinations, Mm -hmm. there's some research that um, a friend of mine who was in my internship program actually just sent me today that I haven't had a chance to look at yet. So I think there's more information coming out about uh, the benefits of different food combinations. But if you think about... um, when I'm trying to combine different foods, a lot of the time I'm looking to make sure, okay, I have something that's got more of that starchy component to it. I have something that's got more of that protein component to it. And I have something that has more of that fat component to it. So I'm kind of looking to see like, for example, you probably notice if you have chicken, rice, and vegetables, you do okay. Your body's, your body's pretty good to go unless you have you know, some form of sensitivity lying into something that you're eating. Whereas, because that's got a nice balance. As long as your chicken's not totally deep fried and soaked in fat, and then you're putting a ton of dressing on your salad on top of it, and, you know, frying your potatoes with it, then you won't feel as good because it's too high in fat. Mm -hmm. If I have a 16 ounce steak, and then I have, you know, a small potato or something on the side, I might also not feel totally balanced because I have a heavy dose of protein, but my carbs are a little lighter, maybe my fat's a little lighter. So that's kind of one area I've seen. Um, There are some nutrients like you were talking about with like, calcium and iron, for example, like say we were trying to get a good iron source from our meat. And so we put our meat in at breakfast, but then we have a huge glass of milk with it. Those are kind of counteracting each other because of the calcium in the milk and the iron in the meat are blocking that absorption factor. So, you know, that's where if we're getting really nitty gritty on absorption, those can sometimes be an issue. And, and your and our taste buds have a way of letting us know that these two things shouldn't go together. Because you know, even just the thought of eating a steak with a glass of milk just makes my stomach go. Ugh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's like because it's loading up a ton of protein and it's blocking some nutrient absorption. So our bodies, if we listen to them, are actually pretty smart. Our bodies are pretty good at telling us whether they like something or they don't like something. And that's true for the individual as well. So you might see someone that can eat, you know, a steak and a glass of milk and their bodies are like, yes, I want this. This is what I like. Um, Are there many people out there like that? Probably not. But, (laughs) you know, everyone's bodies are going to find a way to tell them this is what I need unless... And there is an unless there, and this is where my eating disorder side kind of comes in with my that type of clientele. Um, if we uh, allow our bodies to go without something for too long, and we don't listen to those signals, eventually it stops using the energy to give us those signals. Mm. Because it's like, if you're not listening to me, I'm not going to waste the energy I have on providing you that signal. Wow. That that makes so much sense. Is um, wow, mm-hmm. uh, because you know I noticed that like there was a period where I was meditating every day, mm-hmm. and uh, I was I was doing an hour, and 
and then uh, I, I wasn't staying on my meditation for an hour at least every day. I was still meditating, mm-hmm. every day. Um, but I would notice that the the the, the voice in my head to meditate uh, was getting less and less. Like, yeah. You know, like the day after, first couple of days, that week, it was real loud. Like, yo, we we have to meditate. We got to stay on this. And then the second week, it was like, you know, if you want to meditate. And then the third week, <laughs> we're not meditating. So, uh, you know, moving on. Right. So that is very powerful. To to to. Sorry, I, I cut you off as you were going through your your program in terms of uh, when you're helping people. Uh, whether they're managing their weight or trying to lose weight or dealing with an eating disorder, you said first you're helping, uh, you're teaching them how to balance their foods. And then mm-hmm. you talk about the emotional behavior side. Can I feel like that's what it is for most people. Can we, can you talk more about that and how you're helping people deal with emotional eating and, and usually like what that emotion is? Yeah. So there's a few different things I do around that. And it kind of depends where the individual is at. Uh, A lot of the time I'm asking questions about stress levels and sleep and all of these other aspects of their life to see, okay, why are these behaviors happening? And are you ready to make these changes? Or are you capable mentally to put the effort in to make sure that you are balancing your meals and you are listening to your body? Or are you too busy and stressed to allow yourself to make that decision to do those things? So that's kind of part one. And once I kind of analyze that, I start to teach my clients about the difference between physical versus emotional hunger and how to identify that. So our bodies tell us we're physically hungry in a few main ways. And in general, you'll see physical hunger come on very gradually. So you'll notice, okay, I'm kind of getting hungry. And then if you don't feed yourself, you'll get hungrier, hungrier, hungrier until you're ravenous. And then, you know, for people that do fasting, they'll notice that eventually goes away. And that's that whole concept of, well, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm not going to waste energy on the signal. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's that one aspect. Uh, with physical hunger, you're also going to notice it probably mid chest down. So kind of that stomach growling, you know, maybe a little bit of hunger pangs in your gut, things along those lines. Or if you go too long and you're getting to that ravenous stage, you'll probably notice that quick to react emotion, hangry, maybe a little shaky, um, and feelings like you would consider for something like hypoglycemia. Um, on the emotional hunger side, on the other hand, you're going to notice that in general from kind of mid-chest up. So people that have ever experienced anxiety or things along those lines, it's going to have a very similar feel when you're emotionally hungry. So you'll kind of notice maybe your heart's racing a little bit, or maybe you know, maybe you just have that craving in your mouth that you're trying, you really just want the taste of something. Um, And with that emotional hunger, it comes on pretty instantaneously. So you'll be fine. And then all of a sudden you're starving in your own mind. Mm. And so a lot of that time that's emotionally driven. And then the big difference at the end of it all with emotional hunger, you won't likely be satisfied when you have that thing initially. So you'll eat it and you're like, well, I still kind of want more. Whereas physical hunger, 
within about 20 minutes of eating, you should notice that you feel satisfied from what you, from what you needed and what you ate. That makes so much sense. Um, because there's definitely, uh, when I'm emotionally hungry, my mouth is all watery. Oh, and yeah. Like in my head, like it's almost like my head hurts. And, uh, but the physical pain is in my stomach. And even though I feel it in my stomach, I feel like I can control it. And mm-hmm. I've also noticed that, um, with the physical hunger, um, my palate is more open to what I'm going to eat versus when it's emotional. Uh, it's like a very specific thing that I want. Like I want ice cream. It really is, uh, it almost feels like an out-of-body experience um, uh, going through that. So that, those, are good, those are good things to know because I think that when we understand what our body's going through, I heard this analogy um, where I forget his name, but he said, if you went to the gym and worked out and you hadn't worked out before, the next day you're going to be extremely sore. And, but you accept the pain because you know it's from the workout the day before. But if you just woke up the next day and you felt that type of pain and didn't work out, you, you'd freak out. You would go to the hospital. And, Absolutely. and so I bring that up to say that when we understand the source of what we're feeling, um, whether it's from our workout or this emotional hunger or physical hunger, then it reduces that anxiety around it because then we know, oh, I really don't want the ice cream. I just, I want a hug or, you know, I just mm-hmm. want to talk to somebody or I need to go work out or I need to delegate and take some things off my plate, whatever it is. Um, it, it allows it to feel more manageable versus uh, out of control. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that whole out of control thing is the side of it that we want to be able to manage. Because a lot of the time, if you have the control, 90% of the time, you're going to make a better decision. There is that 10% of the time where you're aware that it's an emotional hunger, but you really want that thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're in that situation, so, you know, like, I, I think we've all been there at some point where we're like, I know I shouldn't have that or I don't really need it, but I want it. Mm-hmm. And that's the side where I say, you know, if that's going to happen occasionally, what you should do is you should make a decision to make sure it fits in your balanced eating plan that you've, that you've worked on for whether that's with a dietitian or what you've kind of found for yourself, that it's not a cheat, but you make it fit. And you go and you have that thing and you make the decision to say, I'm going to have that thing and I'm going to be okay with that because I made the conscious decision to do that. Yeah. Because, you know, I I think the problem with uh, a lot of these diets, um, you know, the keto, paleo, the gluten-free, all that is that the, the other component of food is the social aspect. Right. Right. Like we're we're not uh, individuals living on an island by ourselves. There, food is is also a way of communicating love, uh, mm-hmm. of showing uh, hospitality and friendship, and it's a way of communing. It's people do business over food, and um, 
And so it's, we're not just talking about the micros and macros. We're talking about a love language uh, in a way of, you know, mm-hmm. to, of, uh, to yourself and involving uh, other people. Can you talk a little bit about that, the, the social aspect? Yeah. So that's something, you know, I have some clients that I've worked with that have actually, that that's a fear of theirs is to eat around other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, other people that are like, that's my job is I have, I go to meetings and I eat and I don't have control over where I go or anything along those lines. And so what I do is I'm really working about that balance and finding ways to enjoy food in a social setting, but also make sure you're moderate and mindful about it. So if I'm going out to a restaurant and I know, you know, maybe it's got huge portion sizes and I know it's probably going to be a little less healthy than I would cook at home. What I would do is I, and something I encourage my clients to do is order a box at the beginning of the meal, put half of it in the box And then you can still have that satisfaction of cleaning your plate. And you can also take that time to maybe slightly mindlessly eat because you're having a conversation and you're enjoying your time with others, but it's still controlled in a way that you feel like you're not, you're not basically subject to whatever eating experience you have. So you can still enjoy that social aspect around food, enjoy the tastes, enjoy the flavors, taste the things you want to, but then still be satisfied and not be overfull and regretful of that social situation that you just had. You know what I love about what you said? I mean, I I love everything, but uh, because I grew up in a household where it was all about cleaning the food off your plate. And when you, when you are mindful about saying, you know what, put half of my plate, get the to-go box, put the other half in the box, like you do get the satisfaction of still having cleaned your plate. Because it's just hardwired in me. Whatever's in front of me, I'm going to eat all of it. Right. And that's something, you know, so many of us grew up with that mindset of, clean your plate. You know, the, there's starving kids somewhere else that aren't getting that (laughs) bad food. And, you know, so we all think, well, I've got to finish it, but you know, that's why either making sure you only dish up what is a reasonable portion size, or if you are at out and making sure that only what's on your plate in front of you visibly is a reasonable amount so that you don't have to have that kind of subconscious debate with yourself of, well, I'm wasting this food. That's not good. Does, does your strategy change with someone who is uh, working to lose weight versus someone who's uh, working to manage their weight? Because the truth is, I find most people have lost the weight, but they, mm-hmm. you know, the struggle is then what they do when they get there. I think that the, because they expect their life to be so different when, or like they, or I think it's part of the expectation of like, I won't have emotional pain anymore. Once I get down Mm -hmm. to this goal weight, Um, can you, is there a different strategy or um, or do you prepare them for when they are approaching their goal weight? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the nice thing about the way I kind of manage food and meal planning and, you know, dividing up your portions. Everything I do in terms of my plans is based off of choosing the foods that you like to fit the meal plan and the portion sizes that I provide you. 
And then also understanding that estimating and eyeballing. So basically, you train your body to feel hungry and full when it should. And then at that point, you just kind of get used to it. So it becomes a lifestyle. And that way, by the time you reach your goal weight, it's just the way you do things rather than a restrictive thing that's going to end and it has an end goal. The one thing I will say I do slightly differently when people reach their goal Mm -hmm. is I do kind of bring in another side of this concept called intuitive eating, where it's, it's basically listening to your body and understanding, okay, am I hungry? Am I full? And for my clients that I feel like can develop that that interaction with their own body and you know maybe they don't need their snack that day because they're feeling full then they don't have to force themselves to eat it or if they're eating their lunch and they have their normal portion size and they feel full they can stop and that's okay on the other side if maybe they've been extra active that day and they're more hungry beyond their meal plan they know how to make a choice to say okay i know what a balanced snack beyond my meal plan might look like. And I can incorporate that even though it's beyond what I should maybe have calorically a day, but my body's telling me I need it. So this is my way of doing that healthfully. I, so it, so to, to reiterate what you said, it sounds like when they're on the weight loss plan, you're saying, all right, we're going to have three meals a day and two snacks. And then once we get you to your goal weight, then it becomes more about listening to your body now that you've trained it in terms of what mm-hmm. a balance, what balanced meals look like and what snacks look like. Now it's about mm-hmm. going with your gut versus going with the plan. Right. And so in general, I always tell them, I say the plan is there as a basis. It's there for you to always refer to if you feel like you're getting off track. Um, so that's, that's always kind of their safety net is they have their plan available for them. And depending on the individual, like if they reach their goal and they notice their weight is still dropping and they don't want to go any lower, we'll adjust the meal plan accordingly, um, to make sure that they are at a maintain range versus a loss range. So we will make tweaks on that. But basically the meal plan is there as their safety net, their backup, their reference. They just don't have to be quite as 100% vigilant and strict with it at that point. When you're, when you're creating these meal plans, uh, uh, how are you getting the buy-in? Because, and the reason why, what, what, I guess what I'm asking mm-hmm. is, um, you know, for some people, most people who just eat whenever or whatever, they're kind of, they don't, they're, they're not mindful mm-hmm. about what they eat or when they eat. And then a meal mm-hmm. plan sounds to be like, you know, like you're, you're eating, uh, you know, during these times and then mm-hmm. you're eating these foods. So we're changing a lot of behaviors at once. Right. Are you changing all those behaviors at once or are you gradually implementing the, the meal plan? And if it's a gradual, mm-hmm. thing, how are you doing that part? So that definitely depends on the client and depends on where they're already at with their eating. So I have some clients that are pretty close to doing the right things, but maybe their, you know, carb, protein, fat balance is off and I'll adjust that for them. And that's a relatively easy change for them. But then I have people that say maybe they're only eating two meals a day and now I'm telling them 
to have three meals and two to three snacks a day. And that's a big change. <laughs> like you said, you know, now you're learning how to portion your foods and you have to eat multiple times more a day. And in that situation, you know, I say, okay, our first goal is maybe we're going to focus on making sure these two meals a day that you're eating are well balanced. Mm. And maybe we're trying to add one snack in. Then we kind of work our way up to the full meal plan. So we kind of will take like maybe we'll we'll do small attainable goals. So basically, okay, first I want you just to look at the meal plan and figure out, does this make sense? What questions do I have? How would I make this fit my day? And then from there, they, you know, then we kind of say, okay, we're going to focus on these couple meals and then we're going to focus on these snacks and kind of work our way up to that full, full meal plan compliance. And the other side of it with my meal plans is I am telling them portion sizes of food groups, but I'm not telling them the specific foods to put in there. So that's where I I teach them, you know, what they can count as a carb and what a serving size is going to look like. But I'm not telling them they have to eat oatmeal with peanut butter and chia seeds or something like that for breakfast. I'm not telling them what they have to choose. If they're unsure, I'll give them ideas. But I, I never tell them the exact meals and snacks they should have because that's not attainable. You have a busy day when you can't prep your own food and there goes your meal plan. There goes your diet, if you want to call it that. And then you feel guilty and then it just kind of spirals out. Well, I'm going to skip it the next day because I already failed. And so I try and really make it so that they can take anything they choose to eat and make it fit their meal plan. Right, because uh, you're, you're being aware that it's it's not everything is practical, and you you, you want to teach them how to think for themselves versus uh, a, some dogmatic uh, uh, plan that they that they have to follow. And then when you're when it's not available, they fall completely off the rails. Exactly. What can you give us two 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 good snack examples? Mm -hmm. So snacks, definitely depending on allergies. So, you know, I I have kind of in my mind, my go-to snacks for the average person and then my go-to backup options for people with like nut allergies or dairy allergies or things like that. So like for people that can kind of eat anything, making your own trail mix is such a great snack option. So I don't like the store-bought ones because they are loaded with added sugar that isn't necessary. But if you can buy just some plain dried fruit mixes and some plain nut mixes, mix it together yourself and a handful of that, that's a good balanced snack. So that's a quick, easy option for a lot of people. You can also do fruit with peanut butter or any other sort of nut butter. That's also a great option. Um, Some other options that I know some of my clients really like is also doing like some whole grain crackers with cheese. And at that point, you know, about 10 small crackers with, you know, a cheese stick size worth of cheese is going to be a balanced snack. So snacks don't have to be big. And a lot of the time, you know, when we think snack, we think junk food. Right. And so, you know, having that understanding that, 
our snacks can be balanced and they can be either quick options like that handful of trail mix or they can be elaborate and we can make a piece of avocado toast and and do something like that. So, you know, there's a lot of different options there. You know what I like about that? It makes me realize because uh, sometimes I would have a protein shake as a snack. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work because it's it isn't, there aren't textures to a protein mm-hmm. shake and there's not a lot of taste. It's just not a lot of anything except the... Uh, the protein in there. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, after I drink it, I, the only way the protein shake works for me is if I take, it goes, if I take 30 minutes to drink it. Yeah. Uh I have to to span it out over 30 minutes and then I feel satisfied. But a lot of times though, I end up just chugging a thing in like a couple minutes Mm -hmm. and Mm then I'm uh, I'm hungry all over again. So there is something Mm -hmm. to, taking your time when you're eating something or even drinking something. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, and something like a protein shake for people like, like for me, I love the taste of food. So when I have the opportunity to eat, I'm going to eat something that I want to eat and I enjoy the taste of it. I'm not going to have something that's not going to be satisfying to me. For other people, I know there's people that, you know, they're trying to get their calories in. Maybe they're trying to gain weight, build muscle, and they're not hungry enough for all the calories they need. And so that's when something like a protein shake or something along those lines is a great option to help supplement the real food when you can't get it all from your diet and your normal eating. Um, I love that you said uh, something that's not satisfying to you. Uh, I think that's a word that people need to lock in more is like, is this going to be satisfying to me? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you'll you'll be surprised at the foods that you, if you look really looked at, you'd be like, no, that won't satisfy me at all. It might hold me over or (laughs) through, but it won't satisfy me. Um, Exactly. Let me ask you this with the background uh, as you start off as a gymnast and then the mm-hmm. ballroom dancing, and um, and now you're you're uh, a dietitian. Also, a lot of times I find that dietitians and especially athletes have had food disorders. Did you struggle with any food disorders? That's a really great question, and I think you know, for me personally, I I definitely had thoughts that maybe fit into those realms. So there's what they call disordered disordered eating or disordered eating thoughts. Mm. So these processes of like, well, I'm not happy with my body image or I need to be stronger, more fit. And I don't like how I look, um, which tends to very closely be related to food. I luckily for myself was able to make that kind of scientific connection in my own brain that said, I don't think starving myself is worth it. And I don't like throwing up. So it's not worth it for me to do those things. I'd better find a healthier solution to reach the goals that I want to have. Mm. Um, so I, I think the tough part about that is a lot of people don't stop at those negative thoughts the way I did. And they actually go through and it's worth it to them to maybe make those food-related choices. And so I definitely... I. Sh- I, I did have my struggles on the thoughts, even though I, I didn't 
make those food choices. Um, but it does help me relate a lot to my clients that have made those food choices because I can kind of relate to seeing like, Hey, when I, when I was at that point, or even as a dancer now, there's those qualities that people want to see in the way your body looks and, you know, the way you carry yourself, your strength, your performance, all of that. And it's a hard thing to live up to. And sometimes when people don't know how to manage that or manage the stressors, they go to just cutting out foods. And something that I work with a lot with the athletes that I work with, um, just from my own experiences of understanding like, hey, I understand what it's like to look in the mirror and feel like you don't like that person or you don't like what that looks like. But I want you to find something that you do like about that. And let's figure out what we can do in terms of healthful balance of our food so that we can have the energy we need to accomplish the goals that we have in our athletic sport career, whatever it may be. So we're strong, we're fueled, but maybe we can also have a good body type for the sport. The other side of that with the body image thing is with Instagram and social media and ads and things like that. Now there's so much photoshopping and false advertising that makes athletes think you have to look a certain way and you don't. And everyone's body is different. And being able to understand that as long as you're fueling your body appropriately to give it the energy and the strength it needs, your body will do what it has to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you, so did you go through any therapy or did you, did you do all this work on your own? Did you, did you have a coach? Like what Mm -hmm. were some of the things that helped you get through that disordered thinking around food? So for me, a lot of it, so I I was definitely a nerd um, and I, I still am. And so for me, a lot of it was my own thought processes and really just understanding like, looking at the science, looking at, you know, the benefits and the research and all of that kind of stuff. And for me, that was encouraging within itself. Um, I definitely had a lot of family support too. So I, I, I was open with my parents. I was open with my mom about concerns or struggles that I had. And she was able to talk with me through a lot of that, um, later on in life and just in general, like, so as a gymnast, I, I went to a sports therapist because I was an overthinker. And so I was someone that I was like, well, if I did that, I could break my neck, you know, and I'm scared to do that. So working through the stresses of that, those desires for perfection and learning how to, how to reach a goal while still being satisfied that not everything is going to be perfect. So, you know, definitely communication. I didn't do too much therapy at that point. Um, but you know, I had met with the occasional, like an occasional therapy visit or a coach or a mentor or someone that was kind of able to help me find my way through those thoughts. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, cause, uh, you know, I, I love that, you know, one that your family was so supportive and that you, you were able to share with them and open up to them. I think a lot of times when we do have uh, food disorders or, or whatever we're struggling with, uh, the family and friends are the, the the last people that we tell. We try to keep it to ourselves. So uh, mm-hmm. it's good to hear the story of by you opening up, sharing, communicating, 
that you were able to get the help that you that you needed and 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 not feel uh, ashamed by it, but also going to a therapist. And it just really took a team and a village to uh, to help you move through that. So so thank you uh, for sharing that part. Um, working with athletes to, to wrap up here. Was there? Do you see a difference uh, in terms of body image with the male and female athletes? So, yes and no. Um, In general, when I'm looking at the male versus the female athletes, usually they both have a, they both tend to have some degree of a body image thought process. So that's something a lot of people are like, well, men can't have anorexia or men can't have body image issues. And that's, that's a gross, gross understatement, you know, and and definitely a, a comment that people are just misguided. Um, a lot of the times with men specifically, the goals tend to be to want to be bigger or stronger. They're not muscular enough or they're not, you know, bulky enough. And though that tends to be a big thought process when it comes to male athletes and a lot of male clients I've worked with trying to accomplish um, athletic goals. When it comes to females, it tends to be more, you know, some of them do want to build muscle and get stronger now that the fitness competition world of females has grown. Um, But a lot of the time they're just trying to get as lean as possible because they need to look good in that leotard or, you know, they need to wear, you know, if they're, even if they've got to wear a volleyball outfit or a lacrosse outfit or something like that, you know, they want to look good in what they're wearing. And so for them, a lot of the time it shifts more toward that desire to be thin where the the few times when it comes to athletes where I've seen males have a desire to be thin is in sports like track and a lot of those quick endurance related sports. You'll sometimes see a little bit of that. Um, but in general, I feel like it is slightly different in terms of what the body dysmorphia or body image issues tend to be between men and women. But I do feel like they are there in both populations. Fantastic. Yeah, because, you know, I, I, I recognize in myself, like, I, you know, I'm, I turned 44 this year and I definitely, mm-hmm. there are some struggles still with the body image of like, I still want to look and feel the way I did when I was 22. You know, oh, yeah. uh, and so having to come to terms with, like you said, the hormonal changes, the aging, the things that my body can't do, can do. Like I'm still, I'm still an athlete in my head. Mm-hmm. Oh and, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I know <laughs> like, that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so like I'm eating like I have a game on Saturday, you know. Um, but mm-hmm. but but it's actually uh, you know getting older is actually probably uh, like I, I move better now than I did when I was younger because I I focused more on, uh, mobility and pliability and, uh, and, uh, my, uh, I forget what the third one is, but, but just more Mm -hmm. about range of motion. Like it went from focusing on strength to focusing on movement and functional movement Mm -hmm. has become more important to me, um, as I've, as I've gotten older. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you have a bedtime routine? Oh man. So I wish I had a better bedtime routine. That's one of my own weaknesses. Um, but for me, you know, it is good if you can take that like 30 minutes or an hour to kind of decrease from technology, disconnect, 
do all those things. For me, I normally I'm practicing till like normally around 1130 at night. So I have kind of a weird schedule. Um, So for me, I normally come home, I eat a late dinner because I have a late night. And then from there, I basically I'll go and I'll watch a TV show or something along those lines. Then the normal getting ready for bed stuff. And then I normally I'll put on an audio book to go to bed at night. So for me, I'm definitely someone that struggles with silence. Um, I'm, I'm always thinking, my mind's always going. So for me to have something that distracts is helpful. But what I've found is an audiobook's kind of a good middle ground of turning off that kind of bright screen light that goes in your face and kind of taking away from that, which is stimulating and, you know, decreases sleep benefits. Um, but still allowing me kind of the distraction I need in order to allow myself to fall asleep at night. But then aren't you missing a whole book if you're falling asleep to it? Or is it, is it like a like good night? It boom? takes a long time to get through that book. <laughs> so, you know, it takes me like 15, 20 minutes to fall asleep. And that's about what I hear every single night. And then we just kind of scoot, scoot our way along that book. <laughs> <laughs> There is a uh, podcast I started listening to recently called uh, Nothing Much Happens. And this is a woman who she tells these bedtime stories where nothing happens. You know, (laughs) she'll she'll just describe her waking up and going to work or going into a, a bookstore or coming home from work or a rainy day. But it's so descriptive. It, but nothing's happening. So it, it like mm-hmm. you fall asleep, you don't miss it. And then she tells the story twice. So um, it's the perfect thing to listen to because I'm not like, oh, I'm missing something because uh, nothing much is happening. It's just. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I and, and so last question, I, we understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, listeners, check out her website at Denver's Dancing Dietitian dot com. Denver's Dancing Dietitian. She has a blog. Uh, she has her programs on there. Uh, you could you could check out her article and, and uh, videos of, of her ballroom dancing. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and what are you on Instagram? Go ahead, plug Ari. Where, where can people find you? Uh, Instagram, I am Denver's Dancing Dietitian on there as well. So keep it pretty simple. Uh, underscores between each of those words, I believe. Um, and so that's the best place to find me on Facebook. I'm also a taste of health LLC. Um, and so that's my, my official business name and my website is definitely the best place to access me. And from there you can get all your links to everything else at Denver's dancing dietitian.com. So that is definitely probably the best resource to find me. Okay. Is, uh, before we wrap, is there anything that we haven't covered that you, you feel like, people should know that people are getting wrong that you're like, I can't believe people are still doing this or people need to do this or take this or is there anything Mm -hmm. that we left on the table? I think the biggest thing is understanding that, you know, diet fads come and go. They're always changing. So the biggest thing is if you can find something that is balanced, non-restrictive, moderation-based, that really promotes and supports your lifestyle and you can create food and make food a part of your life where it's not guilt causing as well. It really does help with 
reaching your weight goals, reaching your health goals, staying healthy long-term and just feeling like you can accomplish the things you want to accomplish. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is a lot of time we get so over-focused on food and restricting and, you know, trying to find the quick fix. It's a lifestyle that you have to follow. And, you know, if you can get a lifestyle of balance and moderation, decrease one more stressor in your life, it will help with long-term health overall. Yeah. I, I think people will get afraid of that word balance, but in order to, for something to balance out, that means it has to teeter totter both ways, you know? Right. And mm-hmm. uh, so this idea of getting things perfect, uh, that's, that's not what balance really is. It's uh, balance is uh, about sliding a little to the left, going a little bit to the right, having a little bit of ice cream, having a little mm-hmm. bit of salt. Like, so, um, and last question, I asked this of all the guests on here. We understand, Ricky, that you're not a psychologist or psychiatrist, mm-hmm. uh, but I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on a precipice of uh, ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say mm-hmm. to that person? I would say to really, really pay attention and understand that there is someone out there that cares about you. And, you know, it's, it's hard to remember sometimes that people care about you and your life and that your life does matter and keeping in mind that you don't have to be perfect and that, you know, as long as you take things day by day, life, life will eventually be good to you. So it's worth it to stick around. Wow. Ricky Lee Hotz, thank you so much. Check her out at Denver's Dancing Dietitian. Uh, Thank you all for listening in to Before You Kill Yourself. Once again, if you want one-on-one coaching, go to thrivewithleo.com. Check that out. Uh, we also are on Instagram at Before You Kill Yourself. Um, and then on Twitter. I don't know if I update the Twitter that much, though. Um, but check us out on Instagram. Thank you for sharing the episode. Share this with somebody that you feel like needs to hear this message. And uh, thank you, Ricky Lee Hots, once again for joining us. Go to her website, Denver's Dancing Dietitian. I'm Leo Flowers, and we will talk to you again soon.